got capped and the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth tracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A bestie against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking, the ones who keep on grappling The listeners, some followers who get it, keep on stacking Great friend and the type to set a trend Precedent to see where haters with the men, there's no pretend 17 years, he along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Cali back by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood one, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media so I'm rolling, right? I'm good to go. Great. Okay, so I'm jumping right into this thing because listen, I'm 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 in a place right now. I'm feeling, and I'm you know, wherever you may be right now, feel with me right now. I am feeling on fire. And I'm just getting right into this podcast this week because I'm so excited about this week's guest. His name is Tyson McDowell. And I'm going to tell you why you should listen to this whole podcast. And just keep in mind one thing. Last week, I gave you a guy named Dave Vigil, who was an entry-level guy at Qualcomm and worked his way through a 20-year career and now is the CEO of Pinarello USA. He combined his passion for business and knowing the cellular space, learning the professional cycling space, and now he is in control of his own life, which is something he really talked about last week. And it was funny, I got some messages from people who said, I I thought, why am I going to listen to this podcast? What do I care about a former Qualcomm executive? And this this gentleman who, who sent me this feedback said, it was one of your best podcasts. And I only listened to it because I had nothing else to listen to. And I thought, why am I going to listen? And I was glad I did. So I'm so pumped about last week because my friend Dave Vigil, who was on the podcast, he only wants statistics. He wants to know whether or not he's in the lead, whether or not he's got the most downloaded podcast of the year so far. And um, so I'll get him some stats and we'll see how he stacks up. This week's podcast, though, with my friend Tyson McDowell, and I say my friend, let me tell you something. I only met this guy a few months ago. And what we talk about in this upcoming podcast, I did not know the answers to. I was desperate to learn them, but here's all I kind of knew about this guy. A close friend of mine, a guy whose name is Blair Cannon, his name has been mentioned throughout the podcast as the years gone on. Unbelievably, many of you listen to each one, I know, because of your feedback, and you may have heard that name. Blair connected me to Tyson and said, Tyson is a guy who can help you out because, as I've talked about, being a first-time CEO of a startup software, well, whatever we are, platform, um, you know, Tyson could could give me a hand. He could he could help me a little bit. And I got to tell you, this guy is probably one of the smartest people I've ever been around. And I would, well, I've put my life in this guy's hands. This young man, by the time he was eighteen years old, was not going to go. He was not going to go to college. He, he graduated high school. He was not going to go to college. He was getting into business already at 18 years old because earlier in his life, at 14 years old, 
he was already kind of a, excuse me for saying this, but kind of a computer geek, but more of a hands-on guy. He was a build-his-own-machine kind of a kid. Like for me, if I got a model, remember when you were a kid and you, you, in grocery stores, we used to be able to buy toys, and a model, a car model would come in a box, and I would take it and I'd unload all the pieces, and it was chaos to me. And all I would do, because I couldn't read the instructions, is I would try and make the car look like what it looked like on the box. So I would always end up with like 100 extra extra pieces. A guy like Tyson, he could have done that blindfolded. This guy was building computers at 14 years old and was already making money and was already blowing money, as he'll talk about, on crazy shit, by the way. And from the time he's 18 till the time he's in his early 30s, not only is he building a business, but he's also an insanely accomplished pilot flying fighter jets and doing exercises with the U.S. military as a contractor. I mean, this is a crazy story. A guy who's accomplished so much in such a short period of time. Now, the best part of this interview was we did it at my house. Tyson's been a huge influence on my company, Sided. He and I actually have a meeting coming up later on this week where he's helping me go from web-based app to mobile app. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about all this stuff because I'm constantly learning. I love to learn. And being around guys like Tyson has introduced me to other young, successful entrepreneurs, uh, guys who know so much more about the tech world than I ever have or will. But I'm meeting so many interesting, smart people coming up with so many creative ideas. And it's, it's, it's really an inspiration to have validation from guys like Tyson, who you're about to hear from. So let me jump right into this because I'm really excited about having Tyson McDowell on my on my podcast of course, let me just thank quickly my my people at the Brigantine. I literally just came from lunch at the Brigantine. I was putting two friends together, and both guys were available today to have lunch. And on the spot, the three of us all met for lunch. Everybody had the fish tacos, which were spectacular. But there was this new seasonal taco that had lobster and steak and cheese and vegetables and some kind of sauce. And, dude, it was insanity. Okay, I had three of them. Thank you to my friends at the Brigantine for being a sponsor of the solo podcast. My people from Callaway, CallawayGolf.com. I could talk golf clubs all day long, but let me just brag about my OGO bag. I used to carry this podcast equipment around. It was heavy as shit, and it would be on a backpack. I just ordered from OGO, which is a brand that Callaway owns now, a beautiful bag that I can walk through an airport, and and it's on wheels, and it's so big, and, and you can put everything, your computer, all my podcast equipment, microphones, headphones. It's a pleasure to be able to walk this thing through the airport rather than carrying it over my shoulder. And finally, speaking of moving things, my guys at Gorilla Movers, GorillaMovers.com, if you're moving in around San Diego or if you're moving out to another part of the country you're in, these are the go-to guys, the experts that make the move livable. I'm not going to call it easy because moving sucks. These guys make it livable. Thanks to my guys at GorillaMovers.com. Okay, here it goes. My friend Tyson McDowell comes over to my house, and this is a guy who he was in biz at well-established in biz by the time he was 18 years old. Here we go. All right, Tyson, we're rolling, dude. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm great. It's good to see you. I like that big smile on your face this morning. Yeah, well, I love your big smile, too. <laughs> well, I'm glad you came over to my house to record this podcast. And um, I think, uh, I think we're going we're gonna to get a good quality session here today. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you and I have gotten to know each other over the last few months, and you've been helping me 
tremendously in my business. Well, you need a lot of help. I, dude, I know I do. <laughs> Believe me, I know I do. Uh, and so I feel very uh, thankful to have a guy like you helping me. But you know the thing is... Um, but you've been helping me too. You just don't know it yet, I guess. No, I feel like I'm helping. I'm bringing value to the relationship. Yes, you are. Yeah, I think very so. Much. So here's the thing. We're here at my house. My dog is here. He might he might bite or bark. I don't know what's going to happen. And bells could be going off from the school around the corner. So it's all good. We like it to be as natural sounding as possible. The thing is, is this, is for all the time that you and I have spent together over the last couple of months, um, I know that we were connected through friends, but man, oh man, I want to ask you a million questions. And when we're together, we're busy working on something. Yeah. So this is my time to hopefully take a break from your day and mine as well and just chill. And and I really want to dig into some things about you, if you don't mind. Dig away, man. <laughs> okay. This is exciting. Okay, cool. So wait, let me lay on the couch. Well, this is going to be very therapeutic. I promise you <laughs> yeah, that. I promise like you it. that. Yeah. Getting ready. So just if you can tell me this, here's, here's kind of my, my big picture understanding, and I'd like to hear a little more about it, that when you were young and in high school, and you're still very young, but when you were like 16 years old, as I understand it, you started a business that you owned and operated until you were in your early 30s and sold this business. Do I have the story right? Uh, pretty close. Um, the company that I sold a couple of years ago, I started right after high school. So I graduated and, and we started it right away. But I had businesses during high school. Yeah. Yeah. Explain to me if you don't mind. I really want to know this stuff. Yeah. How old are you when you start going into business while other kids are playing football and soccer and baseball or they're doing, you know, the debate club or the student council, sure. you somehow at what age got into business? Um, I think I've made I think the IRS hit me the first time when I was 14 or 15 uh, with something that was a real business thing. And it just, uh, it came from technology. I wrote websites uh, thanks to a middle school program that Microsoft had uh, sponsored apparently up in Redmond. Uh, and so they gave me the skills and I loved flying and that was expensive. And uh, so I was always dealing with computers because of flight simulator. And people would show up to buy computers that I'd build them at a computer store and ask for a website. I build them a website and I charge them for that. And there you go. You're in business. But hold on. Where did flying? You, you mentioned Redmond. You're talking about Redmond, Washington. Redmond, Washington. Okay, yeah. So we're here in San Diego. You grew up here in San Diego, didn't you? I did. Just middle school in, well, I was at elementary school in Central California, uh -huh. a town called Lompoc. I know it. Which I survived. Yeah, I, I survived not getting abducted by a prisoner, not getting blown up by a nuclear missile. <laughs> uh, no bombs dropped on me from the bombers that flew over. And uh, and I didn't get too many allergies from the flower fields. And that's Lompoc. <laughs> okay. And then uh, middle school was Redmond and then high school and on in San Diego. So you go to Redmond, Washington as a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid. Yeah. And you somehow come across computer programming as a middle school kid? Yeah, there was a program called the Student Tech Interns run by this really cool lady named Sally Turnell. And uh, uh, yeah, there was a couple of us uh, a year that got to go and work the networks and learn website development, maintain the school website. Uh, it was like an elective course, but very few of us got to do it. And uh, th I, that really gave me more of a professional education. 
So you're a young kid who's learned a little bit about computers. Yeah. You leave Redmond, Washington, and you come down here to San Diego for high school. Yeah. But whatever you learned in Redmond, obviously, Came impacted over. you. Yeah. So um, because I did IT support for my school, my middle school, we walked right into Torrey Pines High School here in San Diego and went to the library and said, what's your program for young technical kids? And they're like, oh, we got the computer department over there. And uh, and then I started working the Torrey Pines website, doing networking and the same thing there. So uh, it was really when my parents brought us down before my freshman year. And we just went around the school and introduced ourselves, just asked that question and there we were, right in the same program. So you were going to be a tech kid. You were not planning on playing football or baseball. You were planning on getting into tech when you were 14 years old. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yes and no. So um, I also wrestled, which I didn't enjoy all that much, frankly. <laughs> um, my father was a college wrestler, so I was trying to follow in his footsteps unsuccessfully. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a very good nerd, and I'm not a very good sports guy. I'm not very good at anything. <laughs> Is uh, that right? Yeah. You say that. But I knew software. I, I knew software, and uh, I was really interested in more complex problems than school would give. So it wasn't so much the tech itself. Uh, it was just that's a more interesting problem to solve than taking some tests. But what do you mean? Like what, what, when you're 14 or 15, what complex problems were you as a teenager, a young teenager, what were you trying to solve? I was trying to solve whatever problem the people that were important had. So I'd talk to the principal and the librarian and like, you know, hey, what's what's the challenge? What's you, the you next challenge? You walk up to the principal and you go, hey, what's your problem? Yeah, exactly. No, that's that, that's exactly what, <laughs> what happened. What is your problem? Developed a good relationship with the principal and, uh, and others and that's it. It's always, what's your problem? And how can, you know, oh... Maybe I can help. I was doing a little tech support down in elementary school as well. Many of my old teachers remember that. I was always, you know, hey, they something would break, and I'd run right up. Hey, if there's someone important, and they're having a problem, I'll just walk up. Hey, can I help? You know, what's the problem? And a lot of times it was technical because this was the early 90s. Technology was new. And as a young person, you're just as good as probably better than they are at figuring it out. Uh, but it really it all stems from... You seem important. I can learn from you. What's your problem? How can I help? Okay. So by the, you say you were in business. Yeah. By what, 14, 15? Yeah. You're, you're working in a computer store? Yeah. So that same uh, year, just before uh, freshman year of high school, I wanted a computer. My parents were uh, happy to buy a computer so that my flight simulator would do better and my games would do better. And at the time, that's when you'd go, you could make a specification and then buy the parts and build it yourself. So there was this shop called PC Power Comp on Convoy, uh, right next to Dreamgirls, uh, by the way. And, uh, Did you ever get into Dreamgirls? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, chicken cheese sandwiches. That was a lunchtime break. Uh, go in the back and the chef would, chef quotes, would uh, make me a cheese sandwich and the girls would come by and think I was, I was uh, cute. Yeah. And you're how old? Uh, fifth, I guess I was 14, 15, 14, I think, uh, maybe 15. <laughs> and my mother would drop me off. Anyway, so I went in there to buy the computer, to order it and order the parts. And I rejected their build service. Yeah, I'm going to build it. And uh, the, the, the guy that owned the store, Frank, he was impressed. And he said, would you like a summer job building computers? And so I did. 
uh, and p- companies would come in and buy computers, and they'd say, is this where I get a website? It's 1996, so those were new. So wait a second. So as a 14-year-old kid, you mentioned that the computer, your parents were going to get the computer because it would be good for your flight simulator. Yeah. Okay, so you've mentioned aviation twice just briefly. I want to just yeah. jump in for a quick second because I know we're going to get to that. Uh-huh. Because I was so happy to fly with you yeah. a few weeks ago, and it was awesome. And I posted the pictures and the videos all over Instagram. I don't know how far off the ocean we were, how, how high up we were. We were so high that you couldn't see anything. No, no, no we, were, like, we were pretty low. We got, um, now, we were over the ocean, greater than 2,000 feet from any man-made object. Uh, we were very FAA compliant mm-hmm. uh, and uh, very safe. Um, but uh, we were able to get down into the 50-foot level, being mindful of uh, seabirds and that kind of thing. Amazing. So, so you were already building computers and getting a job and helping important people, but also by 14, you were also into aviation and flying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was, I mean, my first memories are of dreaming of flying. I'd draw airplanes. I decorated my room when I was, I don't know, six, seven years old with drawings of airplanes accurately coming out of the books. My father, my grandfather, who I didn't get to meet because he passed before I was born, was a Air Force bomber pilot in World War II. And then he became a computer guy. They called them mathematicians at the time uh, for the Air Force. And so that's why they ended up in Lompoc at Vandenberg Air Force Base. So uh, my dad loves Air Force, uh, gets Air Force magazine. The Discovery Wings show was on the Discovery Channel. And we were having jets fly over all the time and missiles getting shot off. And we go to air shows. I mean, Vandenberg at the time was a very active air base where all the planes would practice bombers and transports and fighter planes and recon planes so it's just like in my blood i just loved it all the time so flying and computers and problem solving this is all inside of you from the time you're a little kid oh yeah really little uh my dad brought home a 286 computer really really old computer from work when i was five or six um, and he said, here you go, kids. You can, you can't break it. Do whatever you want. And I tore that thing apart <laughs> and then I would try to get it back working before he came home and discovered I'd broken it, you know, and, <laughs> and then had flight simulator on there. So it, I was able to live out my fantasies that I was picking up from TV and the books and the air force magazine and the planes flying over. So, okay. So then you say you start getting into business then at a very young age where a guy comes walking in and says, I can get a computer custom built here. And I do remember those days. It wasn't yeah. like it is now where you walk into the Apple store or you go onto Amazon. People wanted custom built power, as I recall. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So you're going to hand build as a child a computer. Yeah, I fancied myself as an adult. I had khaki pants on. You did, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you're, as a young child, 15 years old, working a summer job eating grilled cheese next door at the strip club... Uh-huh. You're building computers. <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> it does sound cool. <laughs> it does sound cool. Yeah. So you're building computers now, and now folks are saying, because this is the mid-90s, is this also, do you have websites here? Do I buy, is this where I come to buy a website? People were, yeah. The people didn't know what email was in the mid-90s. Yeah. So you're, again, as a 15-year-old kid, and you know this stuff when the the guys coming in to buy the computer, they don't know this stuff. Yeah, well, I th- well, I knew enough to know to say yes, and then I learned it. I mean, I learned something um, up in 
Redmond enough to kind of get started, but I didn't know anything. But I'd say yes and go figure it out. And uh, that was fine with them, and it worked. Managed to deliver, right? So lots of uh, snooping around on forums, on technical forums to get answers and read a couple books. And sure, you can charge 500 bucks to put someone's face online. Sure, you can. Then they asked for more. And, and it was neat because they would just ask for more incrementally. Uh, and that allowed me to kind of learn as I went without, um, you know, it started very basic. How were you getting paid? Uh, cash under the table. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I get, I'd get paid in a check and then um, learn about taxes. That was entertaining. Right. But like were your parents thinking to themselves, so Tyson's now making like real money. Yeah, my mom will tell you that she was upset because I'd spend it on on airplanes and girls. Uh, and she's like, you just made this money. Why don't you put it in the savings account? I'm like, this isn't a lot of money. This means nothing. So I might as well spend it on something great now. So what were you buying? Uh, flying lessons. And, and my parents supported my flying a lot, by the way. I didn't pay for all of it. And they paid dearly for it. Um, but, uh, and then I, you know, take a girl and a friend to dinner, spend like 50 bucks on dinner. Or so you're, you're a 15 year old guy. You're making your own money. You're taking girls out to dinner. Yeah. I was taking them out to dinner when I was 17. Cause I wasn't smart enough about the girls at 15. Okay, but good. yeah. But at 15, it was all flying lessons. Okay. So flying lessons. Now you're, you're making money, you're spending money, you're taking flying lessons, you're building computers. Yeah. You're, you're while other kids are at school. <laughs> yeah. And they're planning on playing sports and whatever, you know, in the clubs, in drama class, whatever. Yeah. You are out hustling, making money. Yeah. Well, I, but I didn't think of it like that. I was out hustling for entertainment. Because, uh, like I said, it's if you're around really great people. And, and kids are great people, I guess, but they're boring. I mean, uh, <laughs> I got, especially with flying, you get to meet people that own airplanes, they own you businesses. You found kids boring. Yeah, they were, yeah. Uh, it was way more fun to go hang out with, with the guys, with the companies, the, with the cars, with the planes. And it wasn't about the, the, um, it wasn't about the stuff. It wasn't about the material. It was about hearing experience, seeing into, you know, what made them tick, what was hard for them, what was easy. And, and just getting to be a part of that was such a gift. So mostly especially, I just wanted to be relevant to really cool people. Especially at your age though. Yeah. You know, I mean, most of us are doing what you just described is hanging out with the right people, learning from them, listening intently, you know, trying to, you know, get something uh, from someone who has more experience. Most of us do that, you know, later in life. Yeah. And and you seem to have known to do that at a very early age. Yeah. And I think airplanes had a lot to do with that. You know, the, the airplane curiosity is just some weird inborn thing. And just by chasing that and asking questions and being in awe of anyone that knows anything about them, I think just built that right in. Well, let me go back then for a little bit because I want to come back to flying. Yeah. And and having been to your plane and your hangar, I made the mistake of calling it a garage. Yeah. You'll have to excuse me. It's a hangar. <laughs> um, I and, wanted. And, to... and by the way, it's 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 uh, my dear friend Jeff and I put it all together, and and he really supported me. Um, so, you know, it's a big joint thing. Well, when you say you put it together, you were just talking about refusing the computer shop owner and having them build you the computer. You said, no, give me the parts. I'll build it myself. Yeah. We'll get back to this, but the same is true for the airplane that you currently fly. Yeah. From what I understand, it took you the better part of 15 plus years to hand build 
yeah. the airplane that you currently fly. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, I built a lot of it, and, and Jeff, uh, my partner, built a lot of it, and and we had another guy that helped out near the end, and we had some mechanics touch it, you know, here and there. But people ask I me, they're t- like, "Dude, your friend Tyson? Yeah, he built the plane with his hands. Did you feel safe going up?" And I went. Yeah, the plane looked awesome. It seemed clean. It, he he was very technically sound to me yeah. the way I was looking at it, and it just all seemed safe to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It took us fifteen years to build it, and uh, a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, a lot of fiberglass dust, a lot of allergies to fiberglass dust. Well, people later. might ask. They they might say, and I asked this question to you: Why would it have taken you so long to hand build this plane? And the answer you gave me was because simultaneously, while I was building the plane. I was also building a business or businesses. Yeah. So go back if you don't mind then, because this is really what I want to get into. Yeah. So after the computer store and the building computers and making websites for people and continuing to say yes, even if you didn't know what you were necessarily doing. Yeah. When did that turn into the base of the business that you started out of high school that lasted? What? 15 years. Yeah. So. Go to the, the start of this business. Yeah, so I'm not, I, I said yes, built websites, made money, was relevant to important people, and hate writing software. Um, so you knew how to write software. And hated it. You didn't like writing software. No, okay. no not at all. And, um, and I'm also a pattern thinker, like a systems thinker. So I might learn three things in three completely different areas, find what's in common with them, forget the original stuff, and remember only the root. I'm always that way. It's a very specific way of thinking. Just say that one more time. Yeah, so uh, I'm a pattern thinker, and that just means I can, if I learn something that might seem different, three different categories. Here's a thing over here in sports entertainment. Here's a thing over here in biology, and here's a thing over here in aviation, but there's some common threads. I le- realize the common thread, learn that, forget the original stuff, and always start from the base. Okay. So when I was building websites, and then uh, they tended to be for companies, and then they wanted more stuff, integration into this system, you know, uh, time and attendance, and supply chain management, and inventory. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. They said, "Can you? I got this SAP thing. Can you hook my website into that and make this report that's in there show up on the website?" Yeah, sure. How much will that cost me? Uh, 800 bucks. I don't know. And then, and then I'd go, they go, well, where do you start? And I said, well, who's the guy that runs the SAP thing? And I'd go meet the guy and he'd show me and I'd go learn, figure it out. And, uh, cause everyone was figuring it out. So uh, you were, you were, but you were figuring out, they wanted something to happen. You were going to write the software to make it happen. Yeah. So I, then I'd build the software to make it happen. Then I hated writing the software. Um, I loved solving the problem, but and but I hated writing the software. So I uh, realized there were a lot of common threads among all the different projects. And I was like, wow, if I had just built this more base thing that handled workflow or this more base thing that would handle reports or pulling in data or cleaning data or or coming up with with analytics or whatever it was, if I had just built that once and made a little configuration thingy on top, I wouldn't have to write that software anymore. Hold on. You're, you're going to now, individuals are coming with problems. Yeah. All over the place. And you're solving them individually. Yes. And now you're thinking, maybe I can solve all of them at once. No, I was thinking, maybe I don't ever have to write a data integration widget again. <laughs> I can write it so that it's just in my pocket and I can use it the next time. Okay. Uh, or analytics or whatever it was. 
that became a very generic, turns out what's enterprise process optimization platform. Hold on. You got it. You're going to have to say it again because people are going to hear that. And I don't need people to rewind. I want people to, 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 because everybody heard that. Enterprise process automation platform. Enterprise process automation automation platform. platform. Okay. What is that? This good question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Very, it's a solution looking for a problem is what that is. Uh, (laughs) Good news. I know a lot of important people with a lot of big problems. And so um, (laughs) I was helping a friend uh, fly his airplane. So he was a helicopter guy and he got an airplane, real estate guy. Uh, We were flying together. He says, hey, I bought this building and it has a tech company in it. And it's going to be a dot com. Uh, It is a dot com. We changed the name to ebill.com. And he was a good friend, and uh, he says, go over and check it out, see what they're up to. And this was right after I graduated. You're it's, 18 years old. Go check out this company. Go see what they're yeah, all about. Yeah, well, we were flying together, and you know, we are at the airport together. And So, so he doesn't a, look at you as an 18-year-old kid in all likelihood. He sees a well, mature there, young guy who can fly a plane. And Yeah, and, there were elements of, I think, you know, I think a lot of people, they saw my age, but the aviators uh, had aviator respect. Which was an interesting because like, listen, my son's eighteen, dude, and I don't think anybody that I know is going to say to my son, "Hey, go uh, go check out this company." Yeah, you know, and 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 even if they did, he'd say, uh, "Okay, when I'm done with my Fortnite game." You you had something that most kids just don't have, and and by the way, there was this what I'm hearing aviator respect. Yeah, that listen, I had a young man who worked for me who uh, from 16 years old till about 24 years old. And then he went off on his own, made a fortune, created a huge company, became a rock star. Um, but he had something special at 16. Yeah. These guys had to have seen something different in an 18-year-old guy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And problem solving and technical capability and flying capability are all important things. And so, you know, a lot of aviation is imp- a very valuable door opener. It shows, it shows a lot of things to people and it reduces risk of them taking a bet on you. So, um, that was, uh, uh, so I went over there and, and that company was doing some things in, um, recurring billing and, uh, it didn't work out. Um, after about six or seven months, it was clear that, uh, it was a difficult project and I liked some of the guys that worked there. They were older people. One guy worked for Citigroup. Uh, another guy had a successful entrepreneurship thing before that. Uh, and another who was at big banks at some point, big technology guy. He's old. He was old at the time. Uh, <laughs> so we all had nothing to do. Uh, the company, you know, shut down and, um, what do, they were like, what do we do? And I said, well, I got this platform, whatever. I've done a lot of technology and they were like, oh, great. Well, I've done banking and another guy had done real estate. Another guy had done mortgage processing. Another guy had a big problem actually trying to collect money from insurance companies and healthcare because his service would provide healthcare services and he had to bill for them. And so we said, well, let's go out and try mortgage processing, credit card fraud, I think was one of them and uh, medical billing. And can we use this kid and his bag of tricks? Um, and they had their own bags of tricks um, business wise and find a pro- find a problem. So we did. And it took about a year to discover healthcare billing really was it and, and get going and start making money with that. Healthcare billing was a big problem. Huge. It's confusing as all get out. 
it's a mess. If you, anyone, any of you have ever received a medical bill, it's really, really unfun. It's uh, late. It gets there 60 days later. They want you to pay it, and then it changes, and it's confusing. And then you pay it, and then you get another one from someone else, and you're like, wait a minute, I just paid for this, and what's going on? It's an extraordinarily complex process that is broken as all get out, especially from the patient's perspective. So it is the mother of all business process efficiency and optimization problems. And I happen to have a business process efficiency optimization machine that I'd built by looking at problems in insurance, mortgage, you know, real estate trust management, uh, uh, webcams, uh, shoot, I, I hit all kinds of notes as I had pull, pulled all this together. And again, you said what you had built was a, a solution, but you weren't you at the time you didn't have the problem. Right. That's that's what you said a few minutes ago. Well, the original what I built was the solution to my problem of not liking to write software. And I was always working for different businesses that wanted various processes made more efficient. Um, but that was my problem. But it wasn't a very good problem to solve because people don't pay for me to not have to write software. Um, <laughs> they pay me to write software at the time. So, yeah, we went and found a problem that just had a lot of need for that kind of thing. So what you had already built, and can you just say the four-word phrase one more time? Business process optimization machine. Yeah. What you had built now was going to be applied to a problem that someone presented to you, a, a, someone that you liked who worked in this company that didn't succeed. Yeah. You, his problem put together with your solution. He brought the peanut butter, you brought the jelly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, it took a year for us to, to find that match, but yes, I mean, there's a lot in the middle there and I, and, and I've had wonderful mentors and, um, a lot of what I had built, we, I rebuilt and, and so on. So I just, I, I do want to say what well, it's not, that is a great summary. There's a lot of huge contributions that a lot of people made along the way. This isn't my success. It was group success. Okay. So you're 18 years old though, and you're now using this, whatever it is that you built, this problem solving. We called it RAID 2. What did you call it? The Rapid Application Development and Deployment Environment. It's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and the, I, I hate to have and the front And the front end was called Gizmo. It was the graphical integration of system management and operations. See, I'm not a nerd at all. <laughs> it's a very sexy name. <laughs> Wait a second. Back up. <laughs> what what is this this thing that you built called? Uh, we called it RAID two, the Rapid Application Development and Deployment Environment, and uh, and the front end, the user experience was called Gizmo. It was for the graphical integration of system management and operations. Okay, all right. And what is your <laughs> what is your role within the company at this time? Because well, you're you're eighteen. Are you not yeah. going to school? Oh no, I didn't. So my uh, my parents actually moved out, moved up to LA right after I graduated high school, and I could have gone with them. And I was already working with um, that uh, other company with the the fellow I was flying with. And you say Bill dot com or Bill E Bill E Bill E Bill, mm -hmm. and uh, and yeah, I said no, I'm going to stay here. So I got an apartment uh, in in uh, Carmel <laughs> Valley, and. Um, Never looked back. I applied to college. I only applied to one college. I applied to Caltech uh, and got rejected, which I figured would happen. 
uh, put all my eggs in that basket. But it, it allowed my parents, I think, for a whole year to to think that I was paying attention to college when I was like, I'll apply to the one that's going to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and they said no. So you had no intention to go to college? Not really. I, my backup plan was to be an airline pilot. So I always knew I could just go to be an airline pilot or go to the military, uh, fly. But really it was airline pilot. Because by then I had plenty of hours and experience and I knew I could do that. Okay. So this company though, that, that you now have this platform that is going to be integrated into this gentleman's problem. And now it's going to solve for all this technical, uh, chaotic healthcare billing issue that those of us who receive those bills and we're the ones that are having the bad experience. Cause like you said, yeah. they, they do, they just keep coming and you're like, wait, didn't I pay this? And yeah. by the way, this is the same exact amount as this so if i have to start reading through it this is the same as that why are yeah. they sending it in duplicate so this is a huge problem that we on our end have i suppose it must be a big problem and a huge waste of money on the doctor or the billing side of it yeah what was the massive problem that you were going to ultimately solve um the problem we we're going to solve was that that's a big process and if you make it any amount smaller it's less expensive so that's the real problem that we started solving was that there are institutions, big health healthcare brands, hospital systems that spend a lot of money dealing with that. So if there's any automation to be done, they will save money and there's a lot of money to be saved. That's it. That's the problem that we started solving over time. It turned into a patient facing the patient financial experience or PFX problem. Um, which Avidine Health ended up really bringing to market in a good way. I mean, that it's great branding. It's true. By looking at things from the perspective of the of being empathetic and reducing the pain for a patient, uh, really gave us a lot more passion and uh, drove us to solve that problem. But it's paid for by the health system because it costs them less money. If we can reduce the number of statements you get by eighty percent, that's a huge savings. If we can reduce um, the time it takes for a call center agent to make you comfortable to pay from an aggregate total of, you know, uh, 35 minutes at 28 bucks an hour fully loaded to a minute and a half or on average less than a minute because many people don't have to call anymore. They're saving a lot of money and, and as while the patient is being, uh, you know, has less pain. So again, you're, you're a young guy, Tyson, 18 and you're not going to college and you're living on your own and you're working for this company and you you said the other guys were older than you. Yeah. Um, what, what was your job title or role? Within so the we company? all, we all co-founded the company and, um, um, I took the role of CTO originally and chief technology officer. So I, um, uh, built the software. Um, we all went out and sold, but those guys had, a, were much more equipped to go call on people, know who to call and what to say. Uh, and then for the first few years, that was the model. Uh, we ended up getting hooked up, uh, empowering a, a great a consultancy company called Navigant Consulting that had deep access to the market. They had lots, they were very important and had many problems to solve. <laughs> uh, so you were the guy for the job then. So we were the guys for the job. I was the guy for the job on the tech side. And then, um, <clears throat> and then once we realized that we needed to have our own sales staff and, and, um, you know, it was growing. I was, uh, uh, I don't know, it was a few, few years later, I, I switched positions and became the chief executive. 
and still managed the software um, and then brought in a team over time to, to do the software and I was doing vision and telling the story. And How did the company get off the ground though? I mean, you have all these guys that were all, apparently they were all part of the failure of e-bills. E-bill. E-bill.com. They were all part of this and it went down. Where do you get started when you guys all get together? I mean, is it everybody working out of their house? I mean, is there, does somebody infuse some capital? How did the business actually just get off the ground? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say e-bill was a failure. It, it didn't continue okay um it, it was just uh not not good timing and mm-hmm. and you know it wasn't it, it, it kind of never really got started i don't think but the uh um over time uh i'm sorry what was the question <laughs> <laughs> well what i'm trying to figure out listen anybody who's listening to this okay um who really what i've found is by doing this podcast which by the way i started at the beginning of the year thinking that i was going to do a podcast mostly about sports that would help uh, market my yeah. own startup company. Side. Sports, I love sports. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you're a big sports fan. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that I, when I started this podcast, that's kind of what this would be about. Yeah, yeah. What it's turned into is a lot of business and inspiration yeah. and people who listen who say, well, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. So sure. what I'm saying is there's there's a guy sitting at home right now and he's going, well, you said that you guys were at this e-bills, ebill.com company. Yeah. Everybody was out of a job because it didn't, Go on. Everybody hung around and went, well, what do you do? I'm a banker. And what do you do? I'm a mortgage background. And what do you do? I have a tech background. And then all of a sudden, everybody came together to start a business. And now you've you've kind of built this story that that the business is growing exponentially. You've become the the CEO of the company at this time. But if you just went back to the very, very beginning, how did the company even just get off the ground? Yeah, it was uh, the guys had um, some savings, not a lot. Um, How about you? You said you were spending money on nothing. planes and girls. So uh, this is the wonderful American credit story. Um, at some point, I had more credit card debt than, according to the IRS, money I'd ever earned in my entire lifetime by 2x. Um, what do you mean? You, you were just living above and you were just, just going out swiping a credit card everywhere because you thought you yeah, were Yeah, they used to cool? do these amazing 0% balance transfer offers. Uh-huh. And um, at the time, there were a lot of banks. Um there was Fleet, there was Countrywide, there was um, Chase, there was all of them. At way more banks than there are today. And uh, they might say, here, you can have a $4,000 line of credit. And you say, super duper. And then their competitor would send you an offer. 0% balance transfer, $6,000. No fees for a year. <laughs> okay. So you, you rack up 4000 yeah. then you transfer it. Yeah. So the originating bank of the transfer goes, well, hey, what? That money's gone. So then they come back and they say, hey, $8,000, 0%, two years, no fees. You just bounce them back and forth. There were six banking pairs from 2000 till about 2006 that I was able to just bounce around and fabricate about $260,000 in capital doing that with zero credit. I, saying, I ended up with great credit. My FICO scores were freaking amazing. <laughs> Wait uh, a second. Are you saying that you were investing, you were taking money from credit cards to invest in the company, or are you saying that you were living off credit cards? Living off, which is the equivalent of investing in company, right? Occasionally, we had to make, a, a, a put money in very small amounts, and of course, that's where it would come from as well. It's not fair to say I raised 200 grand in credit cards, because it takes years to do that. But, you know, what the company couldn't pay me, I would pay myself in that manner. And um, was there any fear 
at any point, especially as a young guy? No, I was young. You weren't. I, I was always looking at I can go bankrupt and I'd be thirty when it all cleared. Like, big, no big deal. What? Why? Who cares? Right. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, I'm more responsible than I also knew that it would work. I mean, the kind of investing I was doing um, relative to the company and. You know, I was very confident that I'd be able to pay them off, and I never missed a payment and paid them off. So you you had $260,000 of credit card debt? At one point, yeah. And I had $390,000 in available credit. And to that point, I'd maybe earned total income in my whole life of maybe ninety k, like over my entire lifetime, according to the IRS. That is the medical, I mean, the, the, the banking crisis is built on that kind of stupid, irresponsible banking activity where the marketing department, and that doesn't happen anymore. It can't happen anymore. It's just not structurally allowed. Um, but yeah, that's that's how you ended up with the real estate crisis and all those things. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Man, oh man, interesting. So you, yeah. you had this huge amount of credit card debt, uh-huh. but yet you were making the payments on time. Oh, yeah. And you were, but were you paying them down? Like, were you saying, hey, I've got $250,000 in credit card debt. No, because they'd ratchet up. So, you know, you move the 14,000 off of that card to some competing bank. And then now the 14,000 is available on the other one. They come back and they say, hey, congratulations. We increased your credit line 22 grand. And we'll give you a 0% balance transfer with no fees for two years. So you just went from $14,000 spent and then they bump up the credit limit. uh, And you just bounce them back and forth. How'd you wind up? Did, did you pay that off? I'm just curious because now the company's starting to succeed and you sound like you're confident that the company's going to succeed. You're not scared that you've got 260,000 in credit card debt and, and, yeah. you, and you still had 390 grand in well total in, available. Yeah. So. Okay. Gotcha. So you had 130, let's just yeah. say available. So you had big bill or a big amount of debt, but you still had a sizable amount of credit, about 30% yeah. of your, you know, yeah. And, and the company is those starting yeah, to it, succeed. Just eventually I started making enough money to pay them down. So I paid them down out of normal income. It took probably three or four years from when I really started making more than 10 grand a month to, to, to do it. But yeah, I just ended up paying them down. So what year was it that this company, when you're 18 years old, that you guys founded? What was it? What year? That was 2000. 2000. Well, the, the, yeah, the, the official formation date... Um, E-bill was 2000. We formed the company right after September 11th. And, oh, really? Yeah. Right. I, literally, like a week. After September 11th, 2001. Yeah. And it formally incorporated in January of 2002. But we started, I mean, September 11th happened. And, you know, that was right when we were uh, you know, winding out E-bill. E-bill. So, so now the company, what, what was it called? It ended up being become Avidine Health, um, Avidine Health okay. but the, for 10 years, it was called Benchmark Revenue Management. Okay. And so at what point do you sell this company? How- so in 2012, we did a merger um, with another company and rebranded as Avidine Health. And that's effectively an exit transaction, although there wasn't cash involved. And then, and then we sold the combined company in 2015. Okay. And and you were still active in 2015 with this company or no? Yeah, my last day was uh, the last the, was the last day of 2016 actually. Really? Yeah. So so from the I time so. you were 18, 15 or 16, I can't remember. For, so for, much has happened since then. <laughs> from 18 to 33 though. Yeah. 
this was that your sounds education. about right. This was your education. Some guys decide to go to college, then grad school, yeah, and then get a job, and then maybe go back and get an MBA, whatever their their chronology may be. Or some guys go through yeah. medical school and it takes forever. But by the time you're 33, yeah, you've you you didn't need school at this point because you you'd learned. I mean, out you'd learned out in the real world. Yeah, I didn't need basic school, but I can tell you that. I got yes, I got a lot of great education along the way, and I was lucky that I had partners and mentors and friends that would teach me, literally teach me. This story of of you being involved with this company and then going through fifteen years and it did it, did it when you sold the company when the, there were two, yeah. there was a merger, mm-hmm. you stayed on right. Yep. And then the company was sold. Yeah. And did you did you come away from that? I mean, I've had some guys sitting here, Mark Bowles as an example, yeah. $325 million. Yeah. Um, I had a guy who, who I just recently was talking to who sold his company to Intuit. And it's not that he's bragging, it's public knowledge. Yeah. The company was sold to Intuit for $425 million. Yeah. Um, that was called Demand Force. Mm-hmm. Have we talked about that, you and I? I don't think so. Okay, we'll talk about it all. Yeah. But, but, the, but was this a big exit for, for you? Well, for me it was. And it, it was a nice exit for a lot of people. Um, the, uh, you know, it's not the scale of those, you know, the final sale price, um, you know, was just under a hundred million. And, um, but my position in it by then, and I'd also gone through a divorce, unfortunately. And, um, you know, it was an, it was an event for me. I couldn't retire off of it for very long, but I bought myself the ability to do whatever I wanted next and, um, not have to worry about making money for a long time and do a little investing along the way. But it wasn't, it wasn't like all of a sudden money's no object. It was quite the opposite. So it was relieving on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'd realized that this is when I begin. This is, this is the first time I'm like facing the world with some resources and credibility and education that will let me design my future as opposed to just let it happen to me like I always do. What'd you do? What, what did you do when you, when you were done with this company yeah. and you had money in the bank and now you had time? Yeah. And, and the by the way, you were how old? How old were you? Uh, 33 then. I'm 36 now. Okay. So this is only three years ago. Yeah. What did you do first? Uh, well, for the first year, um, I was always mentoring companies. I, the first thing I learned by being mentored was to mentor back. Um, so I'd always been involved in many companies along the way. Um, Even though you were the chief executive for this company that you had been a founder of. Yeah. You were mentoring other companies along the way. Yeah. I was an educator at the Founders Institute for six years and um, an, an entrepreneur in residence for Connect in Town here. And just people would call and have questions. I'd help them out, do some design reviews, stuff like that. Just pop in and out every now and again. How did you let people take your time away from what you were working on? It wasn't taking away. It was adding. I mean, the again, I'm an explorer of dissimilar seeming problems and finding commonality. The amount of um, sophistication that went into what Avidine had, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was also aware of other problems oh, okay. all the time. Gotcha. And as a big company, we couldn't be as technically agile. So it was very valuable to see what a brand new upstart was using in terms of software tools and the latest of techniques and, and so on. So it was my 
continuing education that was absolutely accretive to the pri- primary company. Gotcha. So, so you're, 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 you're going to retire at 33 or at least for a short period of time. Yeah. And I asked you, what did you do first? And you said, well, you, you already had things to do essentially because you were yeah. already advising to other companies. Yeah. So how do you, because when you and I came in touch, it was through a friend, but what I've learned over the course of probably the last almost year yeah. of, of having known you is, is that you do advise now to lots of companies it would it would seem yeah. to me i mean I, I and just let me jump right into this you just recently spoke in santa barbara yeah. at a ted talk mm-hmm. so number one what did you talk about and number two how does how does a ted type of conference find someone like yourself so um well i found ted um i'm very passionate about the problem of our eroding humanity okay so as technology takes us over, we're not being very good people at scale. And I don't believe that that's because we're assholes. I believe that technology is helping us become assholes to each other. And I don't like that. I'm about to have a daughter. Uh, I'm about to have my first kid, who's a daughter. <laughs> and um, I'm really nervous about that. And my little companies that I help will do great on their own. Um, but... Google, Facebook, uh, whoever else is going to take over, whoever's running everyone's lives online really needs to look at that as an opportunity to stop making people worse and translate that into making them better because we can. So I have, um, uh, I wanted to go out and tell the world that this technology hurts us, but it, uh, that's just because we aren't intending to use it for good. So if we do that, there's some things that users can do, and there are some minor things that can be updated to the technology that not only will then make people, AI, artificial intelligence, drive people to be better humans, but the big companies will make way more money in the process. And it's just not a technical architecture. I apply it to all of my stuff all the time. Every business that I work on is all about making a human better with technology. It's all about positive intention. Go to the consumer, make them healthier, make them happier, make them more effective, make them whatever, make them less expensive for their health insurance company so they can have a better quality of life and all kinds of stuff. That's great for those companies. Uh, But there are 2.2 billion people on social media. Social media should be actively helping people become better people. Right now it's actively helping people become automaton, selfish, unaware of truths and non-empathetic individuals. So that's what the talk's about. Um, And I wanted to go to TED to be able to get the attention of everyone to say, this is the moment where we have to choose to use this stuff to make ourselves better people. Because really what's gone on is that evolution used to be a natural process. And it's now a technology process. So the, 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 the dramatic shifts in the way that a human develops, especially through childhood, child development, is very different when they have a smartphone in their hand. And in 10 years, it'll be very different when they have contact lenses that are displaying AI stuff right on their field of view. So the definition of what is a human now includes their technology part. And um, so they evolve at the rate of technology, which is why the generations look so different so quickly and um we have the opportunity to define what humans become but we're not 
thinking of it like that. Instead, we're busy making money online with advertising and other things as opposed to going, oh, shoot, you know, that's kind of a low use of it. Let's apply this to like making really great people. Okay, so so if I'm, I'm what I'm hearing you say is that your talk at, at TED Santa Barbara was social media is doing this to humanity. Yeah. What, what did you say the solution was? Well, there's two solutions. There's a technical solution, which is to just have all the people that do social media, the software people, the companies, solve for more profit while improving humanity itself. So software just needs to prompt a human to have empathy, compassion, and seek truth. And the way that software can cause you to seek truth as an example is to make sure that you're not getting the same stuff spoon-fed to you all day. You need to have some alternative stuff spoon-fed to you occasionally to pepper in some alternatives. That one thing is huge. And then there's um, the individuals can just uh, realize that AI is watching them all the time, but they can't see it. And it's an amplification of your own patterns. So the way that AI really works, particularly machine learning, which is the most common type, it narrows you down over time. So it's like, oh, I think Scott is this um, most of the time. 60% of Scott is this. So then it gives you 60% of Scott 100% of the time. It's kind of like Sex Panther by Odeon from uh, Anchorman. It works 60% of the time every time. (laughs) But it's the reverse. It gives you 60% of you 100% of the time. And then you consume that. And then it reevaluates you later. And it says, okay, 60% of Scott is now 60% of the original 60%. And then it gives you that 60% 100% of the time. So given two years... You've been whittled down to where your your patterns have been severely amplified, but you don't notice it because all of your friends, all your social network, all the news feeds, everything sounds like you. So you think the world agrees when it doesn't. You're in like an 18% cohort of commonality, but you're also then built to have this huge social power around validated truth, which really isn't. You don't actually know what's real or what's right. You just assume that it's right because everyone seems to agree. And then when you meet someone from another pattern, they're from another planet, and you don't, you're not empathetic, you're not compassionate, you're not open-minded. Why would you be open-minded? This person's crazy, you know? Like, you both actually believe the entire world is behind you. It act, that's literally how it happens. And that's the, so by definition of humanity being empathetic, compassionate, open-minded, and curious, it's really easy with social media for people to meet each other and they're just too foreign anymore. It's the exact problem we have when people speak English, but one's from India and one's from America. They're really foreign. It's very difficult to have empathy, compassion, curiosity, and open-mindedness. You're not mean to them, but you certainly aren't developing a relationship. So um, people can go online and be empathetic, be open-minded, search for alternatives, But the main solution really is technology just needs to be fixed. And really, all you got to do is this. It's real simple. So this machine learning right now is figuring out what you probably want to see most of the time and then giving that to you all the time and like obsessing about it and smashing it into your face. You know, contact. Are you talking about, people might be listening going, is he talking about on Facebook they're doing this to me? On Google they're doing? every single thing flowing from the internet. Friend requests. Uh, Google News, Face, uh, Facebook, Alexa. Whenever you say, "Hey Alexa," blah blah blah, she's coming back with one answer. She could, she has access to millions of answers. Why did she choose that one? 
And and she probably chooses a different one for your profile than someone else's because of your preferences that it probably didn't explicitly ask you about. It just guessed at. Hey, Alexa, play some Pearl Jam. Yeah. The the, the device starts playing music. Are you saying that it's going to play a different Pearl Jam song for me than it is for you? And that it could. Okay, but but what does that mean to me? I mean, are they spying on me? Am I? Um, well, they aren't, but AI is. <laughs> what does that mean? It's more than spying on you. It's a, it's spying on you, judging you, and then deciding to make you do that. Now, um, music choice is pretty benign. Yeah, I mean, um, okay, bad example. Um, hey, Alexa, connect me with the most important person for me to meet at work today. Hey, Alexa, um, um, order me a hamburger. What's in the hamburger? What if I'm hypertensive? What if I'm allergic to gluten? What, how, and it'll automatically order me the correct hamburger. I mean, it may not right now, but that's... When you have interfaces like that that are capable of responding to a very basic question and giving you a very curated answer, one, it's much easier to ask Alexa than to actually go figure it out yourself. Two, you're in a moment of convenience. You don't actually want to know why. So it's of service. There's, I mean, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But what a, what's not happening is it's circling back and saying, you might not be aware. Alexa should be coming back to you occasionally and just saying, I think that you like this stuff. And I think that you might be hypertensive. I think you are malnourished and underslept. I think that you're a Democrat. Um, I think that um, you tend to talk over people and that you um, think that you're more attractive than you really are and you're very vain. This is what Alexa's going to say? No, it can come back and say that. I mean, and then and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. And this is what I'd like to change. That's what's missing. That's the part that's missing. It said people, it, this is good stuff. This is superpower. But it's not coming back and saying, here's what I'm doing to you. Here's what I think of you. And just tell me what you want. Uh, tell me, based on that, you don't know what you want. Henry Ford always said, if I built what they want, they'd have a faster horse. But So humans don't know what they, what do you want? I don't know. But it can say, here's what I think you like, you're alike. I think that you're a Democrat and that you're selfish and vain in general. And you can say, whoa. And, I say, and I'm telling you that based upon your behavior over the last six months. That's what you seem to be. I'm not judging you. Would you like me to continue assuming that about you? Or would you like to tell me, based upon that, well, how you'd actually like to be? Well, I don't I don't want to be a Democrat. You know, I'm fine being selfish. I'm fine being vain. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I'm politically agnostic, frankly. But just, and then you could set that intention. And then it starts feeding you this other stuff. As if it was your pattern, but it's not. And then over time, it notices whether you, you pick it up. But that's AI is not coming back and doing. Are you that. saying that you want AI to program people to be good people? AI is currently programming you to be predictable, so it's easier to advertise to you. It's doing that right now. So yes, I would prefer that AI's programming switched from being programmed to make you predictable to being programmed to make you a better person while being predictable. Because I also believe this. Here's why I think this is a way better thing. And why Facebook and everyone will make stupid, stupidly more amounts of money doing it. If AI is so AI-y, why, why do you only buy 3 to 5% of the stuff that it's offering you? I mean, if AI is so damn good, why, isn't it, why aren't you buying 80% of it? Well, if it's 
positive intent, if it's aligned with your opted-in intention, with your awareness and buy-in, yeah, that ad will convert like 80%, 90%, 100%. So, you know, you want, it's good, but it's scary because these companies are so big and they're public and investors don't like disruption. Uh, it's a scary thing, but you can test it on a small basis and generate real data. Once, once we generate a little bit of data that actually shows that these people are more open-minded, um, they're having more positive commentary online, they're using the less negative words, and, and they're converting at a higher rate, once that's really locked in, oh man, that spread like wildfire. Very profitable. I have a very young up and coming platform you might want to take a look at to, to yeah. experiment on. Do you? <laughs> a little debate platform, perhaps? I love Cited. I think there's huge opportunity in those in that that literally creates human that is a human that platform is humanity. There's nothing wrong with the idea of debate. In fact, you need debate. And being able to cause a, a transparent exchange of both sides is beautiful. Facebook doesn't have a transparent exchange of both sides. Both sides retreat into their own corners and self-validate each other. And then you don't get to see into it. Sided is all about everyone coming together and being human together. It's beautiful. And I think sports are really great for that. I think politics, obviously, much more... Um Sorry for the unabashed sided plug. No, no, I'm. I so do believe glad. that. That came from a place of honesty. By no, the way. <laughs> I appreciate you saying it because, dude, honestly, it's, it, I will tell you that my mentors, and it's amazing. You know, I'm 48 years old. You said you're 35, 36, 36. I'm 12 years older than you. I'm. I love learning from younger people. I, and back to sports for a second. You know, Pete Carroll. Do you have any idea who he is? Heard the name. Don't know who he is. No. Oh, dude. Announcer? To, no, maybe? not an announcer. <laughs> so Tyson, Pete Carroll is the Super Bowl winning and national championship winning football coach, now of the Seattle Seahawks and previously ah, of the USC that, Trojans. You that's know? why I know the name. Okay. So Pete Carroll, I was up at a football game, um, and I and I, I really love this guy, and he's always been great to me. And I said to him, I said, Coach, can I ask you something? I said, you know, your general manager is like in his early 40s and your defensive coordinator is in his late 30s and your offensive coordinator is a young guy. I go, and, and I'm just looking around. I go, Coach, is it me or is it just a coincidence that everybody around you seems 20 years younger? And he said, oh, it's no coincidence. These guys better be 20 years younger to keep up with me. And I loved that. You know, he, he was he was getting something from these young guys. He was energized by the young guys. So for you to tell me that you like Sided and that you think that, that debate is good and that, that there is a beautiful human thing that can happen, I'm telling you, man, it, it's, it motivates me, the validation oh, yeah. that I've received from a lot of my mentors, who, by the way, are younger than me. <laughs> because uh -huh. the stuff you were learning at 15 and then at 18 and then between 18 and 30, dude, that's the shit that I'm kind of learning now because I actually went to college and then got a job. Mm -hmm. And then by getting a job, you kind of get into your career 20 years later and you go, I love my job. I love what I do. At least this is me. I know a lot of people don't feel this way. I love what I do, but I got three daughters. I got three weddings. I got four kids in college and radio and a job has been really great, but it's not going to make me the explosive sort of uh, possibilities, not just money yeah. that I want to happen in my own life. You were talking about taking control of your own life. Yeah. You know, and that's something that it's I'm now doing that more so now. You're you you had a 15 20 year Doogie Hauser head start on me. Yeah. So I love learning from younger people. Yeah. I learned a lot today. I'm going to probably have to listen to this a couple of times to really <laughs> let it sink in. Awesome. But let me ask you this before we go cuz we've taken a lot of time. Um 
the aviation part of your world, mm-hmm. um, you have to tell the story because I have to let everybody hear this and then we'll wrap it up because we've been going a long time. The, um, that not only were you learning to fly and not only did you build your own plane, but somewhere along the line, you mentioned that you, were, you could possibly fall back on going to the military. Yeah. Your flying was not just, hey, I'm taking off in a little single engine plane and I'm landing and I'm... How did yeah. you get into more technical and then even military fighter jet flying? Yeah. Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> Dude, uh, I, could go, I could do 10 podcasts with you. Yeah. Well, my, uh, one of my absolute best friends, um, who, he was 29 when I met him. I was 14. He was my neighbor. And he was a pilot too. And um, right when we moved down here to San Diego. So he's the he's he's my friend and partner doing the airplane we built. And and he's a he's a yes man, too. Like he'll just say yes, but he'll go out and just do crazy things. And uh, and then I get the opportunity to go with him. Uh, So we were doing uh, we were at an air show with the Miramar Air Show and the Patriot jet team was flying over, which has these Czechoslovakian fighter jets. And it's like a private Leon Blue Angels. Um, and, uh, Jeff goes, we got to do that. And, uh, he goes over to, and I had been doing aerobatic flying before. So I fly upside down and, and air show type flying before that. And, uh, we go over to the, the tent and, you know, where do you get one of these? Like, yeah. Got one for sale. We'll train you to fly. And, uh, uh, Jeff pulled the trigger financially cause, uh, and, um, we went up there and I uh, learned to fly and maintain the airplane and then, uh, started doing that. So and how old were you at this time? Oh, I can't remember. 23 ish. Right. You've 20, already flown acrobatic air show yeah. type stuff. Yeah. And, um, and then along the way, uh, you know, I couldn't quite afford the fuel. It was about a thousand dollars. Well, at the time it was less, it was maybe five, 600 bucks an hour. Now it's about 1100 an hour. And, uh, so I was, uh, doing movies and, um, DOD contracts, uh, getting... Wait, wait, you guys bought a plane, a Czechoslovakian fighter jet? Yeah, it's called an L-39. How much does that cost when your friend bought it? Um, they're 220000 They're okay. not particularly expensive. So he bought the plane. You guys are flying it for pleasure, for fun? It was for fun. Um, uh, Jay Didn't flies it look it, weird Jay flies when it for it's fun. flying around? Like the U.S. military takes off F-18s from Miramar and they see this thing flying around? Uh, no, the military doesn't mind. Now, but sometimes civilians would pay attention to it. Um, but uh, the military doesn't mind. In fact, I, I had the opportunity to be in a, a couple of um, situations where we'd uh, be flying along and, and just get on the radio and move into a little um, uh, restricted zone with their permission. They'd come up and take a look at us with their radars and stuff. This airplane is an enemy airplane. It's light, a very light airplane. Um, Syria has them and uh, people like that. So occasionally... Um, I guess they like to take a look at us, but I did a couple of contracts as well. With but the how'd you do movies? How, how does, how does somebody find, Hey, there's a guy in San Diego who's got an airplane. that's a Czechoslovakian. Yeah. You know, how, how did you wind up doing movies? Well, when you're in the, that kind of community, there's a lot of, it's a very small community and, and military ex military airplanes are used in film and TV and all kinds of other things a lot. Um, so, uh, I was actually, uh, doing a charity flight, uh, a charity event where I was offering a flight for um, a volunteer fire department. And uh, I wanted, and I found a video online that was a really well done video that it kind of explains what it's like to go for a ride in one of these things and justify the 2,500 bucks someone would throw into the charity for it. And um, so I, 
but but I couldn't get the digital rights, so I called the producer and and he had one, and uh, he had some movies, and we just became friends and just flew together in these movies, and then because of that network. When I was flying with the people that would fly the airplanes in the movies, they were also military pilots and DOD pilots. And, you know, they're ex-military. And so I'd ride along on contracts. And since we had the plane, um, that, you know, they'd call me and, hey, Tyson, you want to over this weekend go, you know, fly up and do this or that? And do So you would fly your plane on a DOD contract and U.S. military guys, guys actually in the military flying U.S. planes, would do sort of war games with you it wasn't that fancy um I and, and i ended up a better up, phrase yeah no i and and uh, our plane flew a lot in um tv and film um when we do dod i'd fly other people's planes over time i started flying other people's planes so um a lot of people own private fighter jets they don't fly them very much so uh <laughs> a lot of people own private fighter yeah, jets. 260 something <laughs> of them in the u.s uh it's a really small number of people that own, <laughs> that own well, fighter jets privately well that's a lot of people to own one privately you'd think maybe one person would own a privately <laughs> right, i know right uh but nonetheless um uh yeah i flew against um some experimental um sensors and weapons studies uh ingressed into some boats in the sea for canada and you know canadian military uh, canadian navy some other jobs like that most of the time we weren't doing the top gun stuff it was uh it was really just being involved in the situation uh the airplanes there their speed the way they look on radar um our flight profile was enemy profile um you know so we were just involved but yeah, it was fun this is an amazing way to finish because now I know it's on your email, uh, lead wingman. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what you call yourself now, the lead wingman. Yeah. You know, and guys like me, and I'm sure plenty of others just like me, and they have a problem. Yeah. And we find a person like yourself, thankfully, that is so wired to help solve problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, uh, like, you're, like, you're like the wolf from Pulp Fiction. Yeah, <laughs> I, maybe, but you know, the, I like lead wingman's a fun name, and I chose it because when you teach people to fly formation, um, normally the guy in the front is the lead, and meaning that they control the radio, the direction of the flight, they handle safety, look out for obstacles, and make decisions. Um, and the rest of them are just joined up, and they're staring at the guy that they're flying against, and that's it. Well, that's the hard part relative to if I've got a new guy who's never flown formation, I'm teaching him to fly. I don't want to put him on my wing. He'll run into me and we'll die, you know. So I actually lead the flight from the wing position. Um, so I'm tucked in on them, uh, but doing radio calls and guiding the flight. So, But when it comes to business and anything, and, and I love people taking ownership of their vision and running their butts off with it and, and making sure that that's a fun experience because it's a terrifying experience. And... Um, and they can make some missteps along the way that hurt them. And I don't like that. That happened to me. I don't want that to happen. So I really look at myself as this is this is your beautiful thing. And I'm here to help you make it just go big and you be big and you have a hell of a lot of fun in the process. Um, so the lead wingman just says, no, you're the lead. And, I, and I'm on, you know, but I'll, I'll lead you where you need to. But, you know, only in the service of you becoming a, this is your thing, man. Dude, I'm ending that right there. That was awesome. All right. Thank you, dude, for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. 
So I'm really happy that we did this interview with Tyson because my understanding of who Tyson was prior to this interview and you know, six months of dealing with him in business and him consulting for me was, yeah, young guy started some kind of a business, had an exit. Now he consults. And that was what I knew. But as I watched him work and I listened to him talk and I learned from him, um, man, what a smart guy. By the way, I, again, put my life in this guy's hands. He flew this plane. When I saw this plane, I was like, you got to be shitting me. We're getting on this plane. He said, oh, yeah, and by the way, I built this whole plane by myself with my hands. It took me like 15 years to do it because I was running another company and I was flying other planes. But, yeah, I built it with, with my own hands. I got in this plane, me and Tyson and two other friends, and we flew to L.A., and it was exhilarating. And then having him fly like 50 feet over the ocean right through Orange County, I mean, it was really, really cool. So I'm glad I was able to... A, learn a whole lot more of uh, the details of Tyson's story, and B, be able to share those with you guys. And here was kind of, for me, my favorite part of this whole thing. You know, we met in my house. We did this interview. Tyson took off. He forgot his bag because he was so uh, zoned in. Because, you know, how, how often do you turn off your phone and just zone in? And, and so he came back and picked up his, his backpack. And then um, later on, he, call, he called me. He left me a voicemail. And he said, I should have played it for you. He said, thank you. Thank you for this interview today. It gave me a chance to sit and talk and reflect and think about where I'm at and where I was, how I grew up, parts of my life. You know, it, it brought back those memories for him. And he said, I really appreciated the interview and, and how you guided me through it. And I said, hey, man, you, thank you. You know, I got more out of it than, than you did because all the things I wanted to always talk about with him, we, we're just too busy dealing with what we're dealing with when we're together and, and time is, is, you know, valuable. So this was fun and I'm glad everybody had a chance to, uh, to hear a really interesting, young, smart, successful entrepreneur and, and a guy who's, who's been a great consultant to me. And so I thank Tyson McDowell for coming on the solo podcast. One more time, thanks to my people from uh, the Brigantine. What a great lunch. (laughs) What a great lunch I just recently had putting two people together. That's my place. That's like my office spot, the Brigantine in Del Mar. And, of course, their entire family of restaurants, including Miguel's Mexican Restaurants. My guys at Callaway Golf, I keep bragging about my OGO bag. Thank you so much. But you might want to look into CallawayGolf.com for all things golf, life, media, content-related CallawayGolf.com and my guys from Gorilla Movers who unfortunately have had to help me move twice in the last couple of years because I haven't really been talking about like the whole personal life. You know, when you dive all in on business, it's the best thing that can happen, at least for me, because in my real life, in my personal life, in my married slash getting divorced, legal bills, uh, lawyers, bullshit, you know, that's a whole that this business to me is right now. It's 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 gosh, I hate to say it. It's kind of like my new wife right now. So. Listen, until next time, uh, I hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you then. Another great guest that was interviewed by Scott on the weekly solo podcast that I never took a cross. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune into the next edition.